knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner. Going, He's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. The gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. I am Colleen Sharp and my co-host is Angela Whitehorn. And we have with us Rachel Miller. I do want to say, listen all the way to the end for a special announcement in the end of the episode. Um, but we have with us Rachel Miller. She's, I, is this, I think, the fourth or fifth time, Rachel, that you've Oh, I think so, yeah. 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 And so um, her new book is out, and we are so excited. Angela and I were both on the launch team, so we got a chance to read it early, although now it's out. So many people have gotten their copies in the mail or purchased their Kindle version, but her book is Beyond Authority and Submission. It's published through PNR, Presbyterian and Reformed. It's her first book. We're so excited. And then I did want to mention, Rachel, you, your blog used to be at Daughter of the Reformation, and it's now at Rachel Green Miller. Is that correct? RachelGreenMiller.com. Okay, great. The old link's still um, forward to the new, It's it's but the new site is RachelGreenMiller.com. Okay, great. And we're going to link that. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about today really goes right along with the other topics that we've had you on about. So patriarchy, eternal subordination, feminism. So these are all kind of themes that are talked about in your book. I'm just going to say before we get started and talk to you about the book that I highly recommend this book. I think that it's really going to bring about some important conversations. Um, I'm in the middle of writing my review for Amazon. And one of the things I said is this is the book that I hoped someone would write. And it's, it's just an excellent book. Even if you're somebody out there and you think, oh, I don't know if I'm going to agree with it. I still think it's an important book to read. And one of the things that I appreciate, there's a lot of his, history in the book, but I appreciate that when it comes to what we believe about men and women, that scripture is your foundation there, not society and norms and what people think, but scripture, when we're going to come up with black and white ideas about what we believe about men and women, that's our authority. So to start off, Rachel, I, why did you write this book? Um, actually, before we get started, I wanted to say one thing I found out today is that through Amazon, if you buy the hard copy of the book through Amazon, um, they you can download the Kindle version for free. 
Oh, that's, that's really neat. Yeah. Okay. So um, that's absolutely worth um, sharing that because people are trying to decide which one to go with, especially since the book is kind of backwarded right now. Um, they are getting more copies, but um, there's, a, there's a slight delay on the hard copies going out. So if you, if you were to say, I'm going to order it, but I know I'm not going to get it for a few weeks, but I can at least start reading it on the Kindle version and not have to pay extra. Right. Exactly. Why did you write this book? Um, you know, I didn't grow up. And we talked about this, I think, in the patriarchy episode. I didn't grow up in a patriarchal home. I didn't grow up in a patriarchal church. Um, I really got familiar with what's being taught uh, in conservative Christian circles as an adult, both through um, Bible studies that were being offered for women in various uh, churches and uh, parachurch organizations, and especially in the resources that were being shared around in the homeschooling movement. You know, I've been homeschooling. I think this is my 12th or 13th year uh, now. But what I noticed was that these ideas about men and women that were being promoted and being taught uh, really had a hyper focus on authority and submission. And while I was seeing and hearing these things, it reminded me a lot of what I had studied in history. You know, my degree is in history. And a lot of what we studied uh, in, in the Greeks and the Romans and the Victorians, all these ideas about men and women seemed very familiar to me. And so I started out by researching the connections. I'm like, I think I've heard this before. I think this is similar. And so I went back and I did uh, several years of research, lots of books and looked for the themes and the connections. And the reason I wrote the book is because I want the men and women in our churches and our homes uh, to be biblical. I want us to be faithful to scripture and what we believe. I want us to be able to answer our culture around us, uh, which is very confused about gender and marriage and so many issues. But I want us to do it from the Bible and not from um, various unbiblical or extra biblical ideas that we've imported from uh, traditional historical ideas that we've imported that uh, really muddle our beliefs and our teaching what the scripture says. And so I wrote the book in order to kind of peel back those layers of extra biblical, unbiblical ideas that we've pretty much unknowingly adopted. And I want us to go back to scripture so we can see the beauty of women and men as scripture teaches. I know that um, the title of your book is Beyond Authority and Submission. And so um, maybe as a jumping off point, why don't we talk about what are authority and submission and how do they play out in the lives of Christians? Authority and submission are part of who we are as humans, right? We, by nature, we are made in the image of God, male and female. Um, authority is that God has delegated authority and you see it in Genesis one, that we were given to command and to lead, to rule over creation. And, uh, and that involves protecting for, caring for, providing for, uh, and promoting the well-being of those who are in our care. So that's, that's the good of authority. We have been given authority. Only God, of course, has complete authority. Um, all of us have some authority in various relationships, but it's, of course, delegated by God. It's limited and qualified based on the relationships. And... Submission, then, is the other side of that. And we, of course, are made to be in submission. We are made to submit to God, who is our creator, and we are the, the created. And authority and submission are a function of our various relationships. Because we are humans, because we are made in God's image, because God has given us various um, 
areas of uh, authority, various areas in which we are called to submit. We have both, all of us have aspects of our relationships where we are the ones who are in charge. If you're a parent, even if you're mom or dad, you are in charge of your children. If you're a boss, you have some authority over your employees. Um, you know, if we're citizens of a government of a nation, we have uh, submission that we owe to our government. If we're a leader, we have some authority in each of our aspects of our lives. There are some authority and relationship structures so that none of us are completely in authority all the time. None of us are completely in submission all the time. We have both. But for all of us, Christ is our example, both of how to be um, God-honoring in our authority and also how to be God-honoring in our submission. And whatever we're called to do, we should do it as Christ Christ did and how he showed us. We lead with, um, with gentleness, not with uh, a harsh, um, demanding authority, but with kindness and being self-sacrificial. And we submit to leadership graciously and respectfully, although um, not beyond what scripture has called us to do and never should we submit into sin. I'll tell you, reading through this book, it really, really made me think so much about things that I was taught growing up. And I remember when I was a teenager and something that I would hear in the church, it, it doesn't really matter what it was, but I remember going to my mom and saying, you know, where is this in scripture? And she said, well, it's not really in scripture. It's just something that a lot of Christians believe. And I think about how many things are like that, you know, that you'll find even in our reform circles that Christians will believe. And then I, at, it was that point in my life that I said, well, I don't want to believe things just because other Christians believe them. I want to believe things because they're in the word of God. And uh, could you give us just some examples, and you talk about some of these in the book, of some of those things regarding biblical manhood and womanhood that aren't really biblical ideas, but they are things in the church that people have held on to and believe? Certainly going back to what we just talked about with authority and submission, uh, the, one of the differences between what is often taught in, in uh, conservative churches and conservative Christian um circles versus um, what scripture teaches about, about us as men and women. Um, whereas I said that authority and submission is something that all of us have in various aspects of our lives. Uh, the unbiblical or extra biblical beliefs that, get, that are taught about men and women teach uh, very commonly that men are leaders. They're the ones in authority by nature of being male and that women are by nature made to submit. And so, men lead, women submit, and that's not just a function of our relationship as husbands and wives and the, the uh, leadership that a husband has in marriage and the submission that a wife uh, owes her husband in or is called to in marriage, or even, uh, you know, the, the issues about qualified, ordained uh, leadership in the church being male. Beyond that, they're teaching that men are leaders women submit. And so that all relationships, all aspects of our relationship between men and women are understood in this uh, dynamic of authority and submission. And in the book, I call it a hyper-focus because it's, while they, like I said, it is an aspect of some of various relationships. It is not 
how we should view all of our relationships. It's not how we should read scripture through that lens of authority and submission. And too often that's what's, what's happening and what's being taught in our churches. Um, as a result, often it's taught that submission is feminine, that leadership is masculine as a, as a trait, as a characteristic. There are also then beliefs about men and women in our nature. Uh, instead of being that we are equally created in God's image, there are ideas that men and women are, are both kind of half of the image of God and together we make a full image of God. And going along with that, men and women are divided or described as polar opposites that you know, men have this list of characteristics and women have this list of characteristics in our nature and they are um, mirror images of each other. And scripture shows that men and women are much more alike than different. We all come from Adam. We were created in the image of God equally. And because of that, while there are differences, which we'll discuss later, our differences are not so stark. Our we're not, you know, women are from, what is it? Women are from Venus, men are from Mars. We're not, we're not polar opposites. Um, and for example, in scripture, you know, you have the fruit of the spirit, which if you look at gentleness and kindness that are often described as kind of feminine characteristics in, in mm-hmm. our culture. Um, and you have the armor of God and so armor and, and military imagery, which would seem masculine to our culture. But as Christians, we're called to both that, we should have the fruit of the spirit. We should uh, put on the armor of God. And that's fitting both for us as women and for men. I remember, uh, well, Colleen, you were talking about uh, thinking about some uh, things that you were taught and heard growing up. And, um, you know, this whole uh, this, reading this book jogged my mind about uh, some of those things uh, as well. I remember uh, hearing it um, similar to what you were just talking about, Rachel. Um, I remember hearing sort of uh, women are nurturers and men are more conquerors. So, um, it's, it's kind of funny when you think about, uh, you know, how we were both given, um, the task to take dominion and subdue the earth together. Both men and women are given that, not just men. And so when you separate, uh, the nature of man and the nature of woman so make it so dichotomous like that it it ends up um, I kind of chuckle in my mind because when you take it to it it's, it's absurdity it almost makes it sound like women build stuff and men light a match to it and here <laughs> we are in this never ending cycle we're just stuck here oh well oh that's the fall I don't know but um, so I, I really appreciated uh, in your book how you did highlight some of these just unbiblical ideas about just the nature of men and the nature of women. Um, But can we talk about then um, some of those views that are in history? And because, you know, you talked about history being um, your background and how you first started talking about uh, thinking about this. How does sort of those historical views relate to this? Many of our views about men and women, as well as, uh, you know, if we if you studied history, if you studied um, the history of the United States and Western civilization, you know that we we inherited and, and took a lot of our ideas about society, about civilization, about government uh, from the Greeks and the Romans. But we also took and we have taken a lot of our beliefs about men and women, about the nature of men and women and how we should interact from the Greeks and the Romans. It doesn't come to us directly from the, Greek, the Greeks and the Romans, though. We get it as it came down through the Victorians. 
and and then again in the post World War II 1950s uh, nuclear family model. Uh, this, these ideas have kind of trickled down through history to today. And the problem with that is these ideas are very traditional. They're very conservative in the sense of being the way things have often been, but they are not biblical. They don't, we don't give, we don't have them because this is what scripture teaches. Although many people have tried to say, this is what we believe and I'm looking for and finding support for it in scripture. Um, In particular, what happened was um, there has been over time, like I call it a pendulum swing of reactions. So you have, the Greeks and the Romans and what they believed about men and women uh, in particular, they believed about women that women were defective men, that our bodies were deformed in comparison to the male body. And so as a result, women were inferior They're intellectually, physically, morally uh, inferior to men. And so the Greeks said that men should obviously be the ones to rule because they're the ones who are who are superior and women should not be in charge of anything because who could expect them to run anything when they're so um, damaged physically, mentally, uh, emotionally, morally. And they developed a concept of the separate spheres. So you have the public sphere of uh, government business in the world that men rule. And you have the domestic sphere of the home, where women are supposed to be the keepers of the hearth, the ones who um, make sure everything is is kept well at home and take care of the children and um, everything so that the world runs smoothly at home for men. And that the two spheres really don't overlap. They don't have a lot of co- commonality. And there's a, a real separation. After the Greeks and the Romans, Christianity came on the scene and things improved for women and for men. There was much more appreciation of women being made in the image of God and being equal to uh, with men before in Christ. And the status of women was better after, with Christianity. But the Victorian era came, and that you're looking at the 1800s at this point. And the Victorian era was a a kind of a perfect mix of several different movements. You have the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, so the bringing back of Greek and Roman philosophy and thought. You have the Industrial Revolution, which, uh, because people have now gone off to work, there is a, a real divorcing of work from home life, so you can the separate spheres then begin to, to show up again. And uh, you have Darwinian, evolution and Darwinian evolution says, see, women are smaller, their brains are smaller, obviously they're inferior. And all of these ideas were then kind of combined with an underlying Christian, and I use Christian kind of in air quotes, Christian society. And they looked for support from the scriptures and proof texting of saying, these are these ideas about men and women that we believe, these separate spheres, the inferiority of women are biblical because see here we, we're proving it. That pendulum swing then with Victorians, that is the, uh, but then you get the other direction is the response in the first wave feminist movement. And, uh, you know, we talked about that in the the feminist episode, but that back and forth is what you see in history and it continues. So after the feminists, you get uh, 
the world, the World War One and Two, and the 1950s era, and then you have the second wave feminist movement with the um, sexual revolution, and then you have the conservative response to that. So we've we've gone back and forth um, throughout history. Yeah, you know, there's there's so many things that are just reactionary to to something bad, and so often the the reaction is just another bad thing. Mm-hmm. Um, what one of the verses that has just been kind of on my mind when I was reading through your book, and I just keep thinking about it, is uh, Galatians three twenty eight. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It doesn't really have to do with what we're talking about in these questions, but I just wanted to mention that I've thought about that a lot. Um, you know, we did a whole episode with you about the feminist movement. And some of the good things, you know, a lot of times when people talk about it, of course, we oppose many things in the modern feminist movement. But some of the what's often not talked about, especially in first wave feminism, is there were some good things. I recommend that our listeners uh, listen to that episode if they haven't. And even if you listen to it back when we had Rachel on, it might be worth listening to it again, uh, as I've even recently found it helpful. But just for the sake of this episode in your book, could you talk about some of the good and the bad that did come out of the feminist movement? And one reason I want to just talk about that real quick is because I think so much of the conversation today is because of that movement. Absolutely. Um some of the good things, like like I said, talking about what was taught in the Victorian era, um, women women were viewed to be uh, inferior to men, to be less uh, intellectual, less less emotionally and, and physically um, able and capable. And so, the beliefs about what women and men were allowed to do or should be able to do affected how they were treated in education, in legal rights in um, uh, marriage and the ability to divorce. And, and the first wave feminists were reacting to those um, bad ideas, those, those, um, those wrong views of women, and they wanted equality. And when I say equality, they were not arguing that women and men are, were the same. They were not arguing at all for sameness. They were arguing for equality of treatment and access. They wanted women to have the ability to get education, to have employment opportunities. They wanted women to uh, have legal rights, to be able to vote, but also to be able to manage their own money, to um, they wanted women to be able to uh, divorce an abusive husband and to be able to protect the, themselves and their children. And these changes were all about protecting women. It was not, and children, it was not about uh, thinking that men were bad or we should, we don't need men. It was, it was wanting to bring an equality of men and women so that men and women could be uh, able to work and live together as equals. And so those are the good things that came out of first wave feminism. And even in the second wave feminism, there's a lot of changes, even in the 1960s and 70s with uh, 80s with protections that were made so that women can't be fired for uh, pregnancy, that they have to be able to get their jobs back, that women can take out uh, loans and credit cards in their own name so that they're that they have access to the business world and government uh, in ways that they were not previously allowed. And those were, those are good necessary changes. But the second wave feminist movement, as we've talked about before was, was hijacked, if you will, 
by the sexual revolution and by abortion. And these, these ideas were not things that the first wave feminists would have supported. In fact, they were very uh, vocally anti-abortion. And these two things, and then also a push for women to be ordained and also to push a, a feminine spirituality. Those are not the same thing, but those, in, those ideas uh, often coexist within the feminist movement today. Uh, these things, and then also the push for gay rights and uh, transgender movement, all of these things have become added to the, the, the early worthwhile goals so that today the feminist movement is synonymous with uh, abortion and gay rights, and um, it's not at all what it, what it was to begin with. Can you tell us then what is the complementarian movement and is maybe connect that since we were just talking about what feminism is, what the feminist movement was, good and bad out of it. Is the complementarian movement a response to feminism and what is it? Uh, the complementarian movement uh, did begin in response to the feminist movement, especially the second wave feminist movement. And I want to distinguish here between um, complementarians, those who people who call themselves complementarian, and complementarianism, like the, the movement itself, because there are lots of people who call themselves complementarians. There are a lot of people who consider themselves complementarians uh, who may or may not find uh, themselves described in these discussions. And I, I just want to be clear that, that's, that there are two different things going on. There are people who have kind of traditional views that I share about uh, marriage, about uh, the husband's leadership in the home, about submission, uh, wives submitting to their husbands, about um, ordained leadership in the church being qualified men. These are views that many people think, well, that's it. I'm a complementarian. So I'm not talking about that. I'm not going to uh, critique that. What I'm critiquing is a particular movement, uh, complementarianism, as defined by the people who coined the term. So it's defined in the Danvers Statement, which was made in the late 80s, and uh, defined by the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and in Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood in the essays that were published in 91. These are uh, kind of the foundational documents that define complementarianism. And they reference very early in all of them that they're, they were writing in response to what they saw in the second wave feminist movement. Now, they did some good things, as I mentioned, the things that I'm not uh, critiquing. Um, but they also incorporated unbiblical and extra-biblical beliefs about the nature of women and men and how women and men should relate in marriage, church, and society. In particular, there is a hyper-focus, as I said, on authority and submission so that everything becomes about authority and submission. This goes beyond leadership and submission in marriage. It goes beyond who should be ordained in the church. It, it goes to what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? How do men and women relate in uh, all of the aspects of life? So for example, what jobs are appropriate for women? Well, women shouldn't be according to, um, John Piper, women shouldn't be drill sergeants or um, they shouldn't be police officers necessarily because it would require them to have too much direct authority over men. And that would be bad against the way they have defined women and men. 
you have discussions about how single women can fulfill motherhood and hospitality, which they believe are the primary calling for women. Uh, so women are then said they need to be spiritual mothers, which is not necessarily a bad thing, right? I, I agree that we should look for older women to be spiritual mothers. But when you have to, when you so define the calling of women that it's about motherhood, then you have to find something to give women who are not mothers. And so there's a lot of discussion then about how do you, how to make women who don't fit, fit the mold. Also, how all men are supposed to be leaders, providers, protectors of all women in all relationships. So you have discussions about how, as a man, you're supposed to provide for and protect your boss who's a woman. Um, and how, if you're a woman and you're a boss of a man, how you're supposed to um, submit to the men and not affront and hurt their masculinity by being in charge. I mean, even how to give uh, driving directions or so a woman can direct a man on how to go, so, how to drive somewhere where she knows how to get there, but without, without uh, doing damage to her own femi feminine nature or his masculine nature. Uh, and, and the idea is too, where there's such a focus on marriage that marriage and complementarian complementarianism itself are equated with the gospel. All of these ideas are, are what's being taught under complementarianism. And I believe that they are not biblically grounded. I think these are areas where uh, traditional conservative views about women and men have weakened and have damaged what we're teaching in our conservative Christian churches about men and women. You know, Rachel, I, I don't think there's any way around the fact that there are people that are going to assume or falsely accuse you it's happened. To, I think it's happened to you. It's happened to theology gals where we're um, called feminists and egalitarians and, and whatnot. And I, before I ask the next question, I think it might just be necessary for us to take a moment to clarify what it is that we believe. Because I, sure. I just fear, because we are not feminists and we are not egalitarian. And I, and I will actually go so far as to say that to to say that about us would be a ninth commandment violation. It would be untrue. Uh, you wrote an article, um, mm -hmm. I think just last week, just again, because it seems like you're, you have to do this occasionally to say, this is what I believe about, about men and women, you know, and we are all, all three of us here are confessional Presbyterians and we hold to what our confessions say on this. So why don't you just take a moment and then I'll move on to the next question to say what it is that we do affirm about men and women. And we're members in good standing too. I mean, yes. we, we're not going against what we're, what our uh, confessions teach. Um, very briefly, this is, and it's in the introduction of my book because I wanted to be upfront about it as well. I believe that God made man, humanity, male and female in the image of God. I believe that in Christ, men and women are equal before God. Husbands are called to sacrificial servant leadership of their wives to love them as Christ loves the church. I believe wives are called to voluntary submission to their husbands, to submit to them as the church submits to Christ. I believe that ordination should be restricted to qualified men in the church. Marriage is between one man and one woman, ideally for life. And I believe that men and women need each other and depend on each other. We are complementary and interdependent. 
Okay. So one of the one of the things that has been part of this whole discussion is Genesis 3.16. And really how one understands that will play into what it is that they believe about men and women. Can you talk briefly about kind of how Genesis 3.16 has historically been understood, but then the shift that happened in the 1970s and, you know, what, what view that really is prominent among complementarians? And then also how, how we should understand it biblically. Historically, there have been a handful of uh, common interpretations for what Genesis 3.16 means and what the, what the curse is, uh, especially for women. Um, some of the, the understandings of it depend on the era, the, the ones that were written during the, the Freudian time period. Uh, look at you know, the desire will be for your husband, that that desire is a, a pathological longing, I think is one quote. Um, so you see influence of uh, secular culture on our interpretations. But um, historically, traditionally, what's been understood is that um, women, women are cursed in childbearing, uh, or the curse applies to childbearing, that um, it'll be painful that um, we will desire our husbands and our husbands will rule over us so that in speaking as women and men. Um, different interpretations across history, some have seen that as prescriptive, that God is telling men that they are going they will be in charge and that women are to submit to that. Others just view it as descriptive that God is that the scripture is describing what was going to happen. And certainly, if you look across history, that it's been very commonly that men were in charge of women, especially um, that men have have had much more political, um, economical power compared to women. In the 1970s, in response to, again to the uh, second wave feminist movement. There was concern about how to protect marriage, about how to protect uh, traditional views of marriage and uh, of men and women in the church. And one woman uh, named Susan Foe wrote an article in the mid-70s uh, on the meaning of desire. And she decided, looking at uh, a variety of, of comparisons in uh, the word itself and what, where the etymology of the word came from. But in particular, she compared Genesis 3.16 with Genesis 4.7. And Genesis 4.7 is where, where Cain, um, where God is talking to Cain and tells him that sin is, uh, desires you, and the sin's desires for you, and you must uh, rule over it. And she looked at that, Genesis 3.16, that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, and saw the similarities in the verses. The word desire appears only three times in those two verses uh, and then also in the Song of Solomon. And she decided that the parallels there mean that the woman's desire is like sin's desire for Cain, that sin desired Cain and, and his, the sin is contrary to, it's a desire to control Cain, uh, that a woman's desire then should be understood to be her desire to control her husband, to usurp his authority, and that husbands were our told then, like Cain was told, that they needed to put down that uh, rebellion. And she said, looking across history and uh, considering scripture, 
that that was the most biblical way to understand desire. And her interpretation has become the default deterp- uh, interpretation in almost all conservative, particularly all almost all complementarian uh, resources. It's even most recently in the ESV translation, I think that came out in 2016. You can check me on the date, maybe 2017. Um, that they went ahead and put it into the translation. So it now reads, uh, your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. Uh, and since desire is contrary to you and you must roll over it in Genesis 4, 7. The problem with this among many is that it doesn't make sense of the use of desire in Song of Solomon. Uh, in Song of Solomon, the verse has to do with the husband desiring his wife. And there is no hint of um, that, her, that the desire is is antagonistic. There's no hand that the desire is controlling or uh, ruling or usurping. It's very, very traditional, very typical understanding that a husband has a desire for his wife. I think, while I understand that Foe and others at the time, and even more recently, were concerned about what was being taught about men and women and were concerned about the um, definitions of marriage and family and the, the roles in the church that were under fire. The answer is not to go in and, and reinterpret desire. The answer is to go to scripture and to look at what it says about men and women, about marriage, about the church. And we have plenty of ways of, of answering these, these attacks without changing the meaning of desire. Because when we change the meaning of desire, it turns the relationship between husband and wife into antagonism, where a husband can't ever trust his wife because how do you know whether or not she's trying to rule you? Um, Now, I do believe that um, the part of the curse there when it says uh, um, their pain will be in childbearing and your husband will rule over you, um, that Eve is told that her work, like Adam's work, has been frustrated by the curse. Um, just like Adam will now, and men, all men since then, women too, whenever we work, our work is difficult and hard, and entropy destroys. Um, relationships are hard. Marriages are hard. Uh, our relationships are tainted because of sin. And I think the most natural reading of the passage, the one that fits best with scripture and then also history itself is that despite the fact that childbirth is now hard, painful, and difficult for women, that women on the whole will desire a husband, will want one. They will want to be married. They will want to have a family. They will want to continue bearing children if they've already had one, um, despite the pain. And descriptively, husbands throughout history would rule over us over their wives, and that's that is a good description of what has happened throughout history. I think all of it needs to be for us as Christians needs to be understood in light of the gospel and the New Testament, and especially Ephesians, with the relationship as it should be between husband and wife is uh, sacrificial leadership on the part of the husband and loving willing submission on the part of the wife and the working together and the serving of each other um, as Christ loves the church and as the church submits to Christ.
Um, well, we know that just like Genesis 3.16 and that reinterpretation, that uh, novel view just being sort of brand new in the 70s, that is a feature sort of in complementarianism and complementarian uh, interpretation. We've got um, another theological um, sort of heterodoxy uh, a theological problem that also plays heavily in, and that is eternal subordination of the son. And um, I know we had you, uh, Rachel, as a guest in the past to talk about eternal subordination. Um, So we've got an entire episode on that, and I'd highly recommend our listeners go check that out. But can you, for just uh, the purposes of this discussion, give us a brief overview of of what is ESS um, and EFS, and how does that view play into the complementarianism conversation? Certainly. Um, I chuckled at the, the two acronyms. There are three. There's eternal subordination of the sun, ESS, EFS, eternal functional subordination, and ERAS, eternal relation of authority and submission. Mm. Um, Though those who hold to the different terms will argue that they're differences, but if you get down to it, it's really the same at the root. Um, and this idea about the Trinity really came about not so much that some they were reading scripture and thought, oh, look, this is what the Trinity's doing, um, but more that there needs to be a way in their interpretation and their understanding and their explanation of how men and women can be equal uh, as we say they're made equally in the image of God, equal in Christ. And yet in a a hierarchy of authority and submission of male authority and female submission in the nature of men and women. So again, this is not about the relationships and about uh, marriage or the church. This is about the nature of men and women and, and a natural authority structure that they believe exists between men and women. And what, they, what they've looked at then is the Trinity. And they say then that in the Trinity, um, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are equal, all equally God. However, they say then that within the Trinity, within the Godhead, God the Father has supreme authority, and that God the Son and God the Spirit are always, eternally, in submission to uh, to the Father, and they say, then just as there can be equality and hierarchy in God, then there is equality and hierarchy between men and women. And this interpretation, this understanding of the Trinity and men and women, this application, is literally everywhere in complementarian resources. It is in books for women, books for men, books on marriage, books books for children. It's in the ESV study Bible notes. It's in uh, Wayne Grudem systematic theology. It's, it's everywhere. And it's in books where you wouldn't expect it. You read along and go, well, there it is. And just one line going by just out of nowhere. It's there. It's, it's so um, ubiquitous at this point. It's, it's in so many places. And, and the short answer, of course, the long answer in the other podcast the short answer for why this is a bad thing is that god the father god the son and god the holy spirit in the godhead in the trinity are one being three persons there is one divine will one divine nature so if there is one divine will one divine nature 
the Son and the Spirit do not have a separate will to submit to the Father. They have one divine will that, that's, that's God's. And so to say that, that there is hierarchy within the Trinity makes God the Father somehow more divine, somehow more God than the Spirit and the, and the Son. And that is uh, terribly dangerous for us in our understanding of the Trinity and of God. It's dangerous in our understanding of Christ and his sacrifice. Um, he needs to be fully God, truly God, in order to be an appropriate sacrifice for us, for our sins, to be able to uh, pay for our sins. It's an unnecessary um, it's an unnecessary teaching that because it does damage, it's unnecessary teaching because it's clear in scripture that Jesus Christ, the God man is, has two natures. He has a divine nature. He has a human nature. And when Jesus in his own incarnation speaks of submitting to the father of the father being greater than he of, of these examples where he talks about um, submitting and being uh, in submission to the father and obeying the father. These are all examples of his humanity. He has both a divine will and a human will and his human will, his human nature, he submits to God because his human nature is a created nature like ours is. Right. And any other attempt to put uh, submission into his divine nature, to put a division or a difference between the persons of the Trinity um, does damage to the historical sorry, historical Orthodox understanding of the Trinity, as we all confess in the the Nicene Creed, as we've understood in our confessions. You know, uh, somebody posted in a group recently an article that was in a very popular Baptist uh website and I, I want to say it was from 2015 or 2016 and where the person was saying that eternal subordination is the orthodox views but you really when the there was a for those that don't know and we talk about it on our episode with Rachel there was kind of a debate that kind of came out over this because it wasn't really discussed a lot but once I understood um, understood it like Rachel said, it's everywhere. It's in children's books. It's in systematic theologies. And it's just, it's, it's contrary to our historic creeds, which have always been seen as um, where, where we understand, how we understand the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. So this is really, it would be a heretical view. Yes. And um, unfortunately, there's a lot of people even in our circles that hold to it. One of the things, if you look at complementarianism, I, I think of recovering biblical manhood and womanhood as kind of the, if you want to understand what complementarianism is, that's where you'll understand it. And um, understanding masculine and feminine, it's in the introduction, you know, it, to recovering yes. biblical manhood and womanhood. And I would I would love for you to kind of talk about um, how we should understand masculine and feminine. Because I look back and think of how many things that I was taught that really weren't based on scripture, um, where feminine is now suddenly understood as um, Ozzie and Harriet, that there's your view of masculine and feminine, 1950s America, you know? Absolutely. Uh, to start with, going back to what we said in scripture about men 
and women who created an image of God. Um, I absolutely want it to be made clear when I say this. I believe there are two genders. There are men and there are women. Um, I know that there are, um, our, our bodies are fallen, our minds, uh, all, all of us, all parts of us can be affected by the fall. And so there are certainly some people who are born with genetic or physical errors that um, cause confusion about math, whether they're male or female. And so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in creation, how we were created, that God made men and women. And we're different. And that's not really shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Um, men and women are different. Now, obviously, we're different biologically. Um, and those differences allow us to bear children, uh, which is uh, a great blessing. But um, there are other differences that are often um, given in terms of generalities, right? That men are generally bigger than women. Generally, their voices are deeper. Generally, men um, are taller, right? Stronger, faster. Um, but those things do not make a man or a woman, a man or a woman. If a woman has a deep voice, she's still a woman. If a man is short, he's still a man, right? These are not uh, defining characteristics. They're generalities about us. And I think that's where, where most of, the, of the, my concern about the descriptions of masculine and feminine that are being taught in complementarian and in other conservative Christian uh, circles, that these hard definitions that say, well, this is, these things are what it means to be a man. So you can become masculine and become a man by doing these things. And or you can become less of a man if you don't do these things. That a woman is, is feminine if she upholds these things and does these things. And I think it's a very dangerous argument because being a man, being a woman, these are things that we are, not something that we become. Mm. Um, Men are men. My, my boys are men. They are masculine because they are men. Um, and you see it in scripture. Jacob and Esau, David, Solomon, all were masculine, all were men, but they were very different types of men. Right? Um, Colleen, Angela, and I, we are women. We are feminine because we are women. And scripturally, Deborah, Esther, Lydia, the Proverbs 31 woman are all feminine, all women, but they are very different examples of what it means to be a woman or how a woman can be by nature. And so we have these generalities about men and women. We have uh, these physical distinctions between men and women. And we also have some culturally um, assigned appropriate ways of behavior that you have within any culture in those very culture to culture. Um, But as Christians, what's important for us to do and see is to weigh anything that our culture says is right to what scripture says. Our culture says that if I don't like what I am and my my image of myself and my mind doesn't fit my physical, then I should go and change and become what my mind says I am, right? Scripture says no, right? That's, That's not right. We were made, I was made a woman, I am a woman, right? And nothing I do to myself changes that. Our definitions of masculine and feminine need then to reflect the diversity of expression that we see in scripture so that the Jacobs and the Esau's of the world are both considered masculine, that the Esther's and the Deborah's of the world are both considered feminine 
within the church. And I think that's where uh, it's important for us to be careful about how we define what it means to be a man or a woman, masculine or feminine. You know, just to put, bring out a little bit of what you just said and put a finer point on it. um, The danger in these definitions of manhood and womanhood that are um, very detailed and oriented around things that are sort of externals, preferences. Um, You know, uh, a woman is wearing pink frilly dresses and somehow communicating submission to the mailman when he delivers my mail. Right. It plays directly into the cultural conversation that's happening right now where I get to choose whether I'm feminine or masculine. Based on my behavior. Mm -hmm. uh Uh-huh. Exactly. Exactly. So, Unfortunately, it does exactly the opposite of what the CBMW uh, complementary um, movement would like to be doing. It doesn't actually provide the pushback um, that they're looking for. And really what would do that would be the biblical view, just like you said, Rachel, that manhood and womanhood, it's something in our ontology. It's something in what we are. We are masculine. We are feminine. We don't choose to become it. We don't. It's not a role that we put on based on our preferences. It's something that we are. So, uh, you know, talking about, we've talked a little bit about understanding the terms masculine and feminine and how men and women are different. Let's move into how do those differences play out in marriage since, you know, that's a specific realm of relationship. It's certainly, and I talk about this in the book, I have chapters on women and men and in marriage and church and society, um, each of those groups of chapters uh, starts with you know looking at what's being taught in uh, the prevalent conservative Christian teaching uh, about women and men in each of those and how the beliefs about the nature of men and women play out in those relationships. Um, as far as our differences go, again, I believe that husbands are called to servant leadership in the home, putting the needs of their family first, uh, that wives are called to voluntary submission to that leadership. Um, but in moving beyond authority and submission, the, the aspects, uh, biblical aspects of relationships that I think we need to recover in, in our discussions are the, the aspects of unity and interdependence and service. And in marriage, um, we see our unity. We are, men and women are united in creation. We're united in Christ. Um, you know, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that Adam says, we are united in marriage, the two become one flesh, right? We have a, a really beautiful unity in marriage uh, that we can see, but we're also interdependent. We are not the same, uh, but those differences uh, that we need with each other, are that we need in each other, are unique to each of us as individuals and unique to us as, as couples, um, my parents, my grandparents, my my friends who are married, uh, my husband and I, each of us have different strengths and weaknesses. Not all the women have the same weaknesses and all the men have the same weaknesses. And, but each of us in our marriage balance each other in very unique ways. And so so that it's really hard to say that everyone should do what, what we do in our marriage or everyone should do what they do in their marriage because differences in our, our personalities and our, our gifts and our abilities, these change how we work together. Our season of life, uh, our family's needs will, will change what our marriages look like. But 
regardless of, of those differences, um, it's important to remember that we are interdependent. We do need each other. Uh, we do have uh, strengths and weaknesses that balance. And through all of that, we are called to a mutual service, that we are called to serve each other and everything that we do in our marriage should be for the good of the other. You know, Rachel, one of the things I've noticed, and Angela and I actually talked about this on another episode, is you'll see a lot of people that will say women shouldn't be pastors, and which we agree with that. Um, but one of the points that you bring up often, like when you describe what you believe, is that it is only qualified men that are called to be pastors and elders. That's actually right from scripture. Okay, yes. so this is this, all you are emphasizing there is the very point that scripture makes. But when there was a debate a couple of summers ago when some people said, oh, Beth Moore should be elected to president of the Southern Baptist Convention, one of the, Angela and I actually did an episode and talked about that. And one of the things that we talked about is one of the problems with president of the Southern Baptist Convention is it is open to lay people. So they actually allow unqualified men. About the same time that that was happening, there was a debate about whether women would be allowed on the board of Covenant College. Now, within that, the board of Covenant College is um, made up of ordained officers in the church. So they're actually saying only qualified people. But I often see these conversations about um, women or who should be pastors, I, I often see that what they'll say is women should not be pastors, but then it seems like the qualifications are being reduced to uh, whether or not you're a man, okay, right. instead of everything else. And I, I really would like you to talk about, and, I, you know, I told Rachel that I had a really hard time with um, coming up with the questions for this episode because there was so much I wanted to get into. And I know we're barely touching the surface. I hope that this is an encouragement to our listeners to go and get the book so you can dig in more deeply to everything that we're talking about here. But I would like you to talk about how those differences play out in church, not just in the fact that it's qualified men, but is there any difference between the lay man and the lay woman in our duties in the church? Uh, it's a really good question because I do think that often the default is, you know, when, you know, we ask the question, what can women do in the church? Well, they can't be elders and pastors. Okay. I'm fine with that. I agree. Right. So then moving on beyond that, right. So then what can we do? Right. And so I think it's important that we remember that the qualification for ordination, while one of the qualifications is an important one, is that um, that it's a man, right? Is, that men are called, certain men are called, and certain men are qualified. The qualifications for ordination are um, are profound. It's not easy. It's hard to be uh, to meet the qualifications, and that's in, that's on purpose. I think that God intentionally made the description difficult, and so that. Only some men would be qualified and only some men would be called to the leadership. Um, and the way that works out in the church then is that it's a, a really small percentage overall of people in the church who are qualified and who are ordained. And so in protecting uh, that, that we, we ordain only qualified men, we do need to be careful not to say, well, any man will do in a pinch because 
that undermines the qualifications, right? The problem of what happens when we forget and we just make the qualification simply um, man, that men are pastors and elders, uh, is that we see, we, we view it as that, you know, 50% of the church, the men are in charge and the other half, the women, um, are the ones who are uh, submitting to that leadership. When in, in truth, you know, you have this small percentage of qualified men who are elders and pastors, the church ordained leaders. And then you have the rest of us who are all in submission to that leadership and who are all equally called to use our gifts and our abilities in the church in a way that, that honors God and that serves each other. And that means that church is not meant to be masculine. It's not meant to have a masculine feel to it. Worship is not meant to be masculine or feminine. Worship is meant to be human and we should all worship God. And our service should be based not on our gender, but based on our gifts then. So what if a woman has a gift in administration, there are ways in the church that are, there are places in the church, positions in the church that are not ordained leadership that a woman can serve. If a man has gifts in um, nurturing and and in uh, say hospitality, he should be welcome on the committees with uh, meals and showers and um, church uh, work with the children that are often assigned to women. So that all of us have things that we have that we can do well, and we should use those gifts well in a way that um, allows us to co-labor together for the gospel. And we can do that without reducing women. And I use this imagery in my, in my book uh, to throw pillows in the church. And by that, I mean, we're pretty, we're kind of there for adornment, but if we weren't there, you know, this, the real work of the church would still happen. And, and it shouldn't be that way um, in our churches. Women should be much more essential in the work of the church. You know, I think it's, um, really interesting that you use that imagery of throw pillow. We're just there to look pretty. And, and if, if we take that view, um, that ultimately the, the, um, church service and the, the way that the church feels may become more and more masculine and the women are just kind of there as an afterthought. I I think that's a very interesting point because I can hear in my mind right now that there is, uh, probably some of our listeners and certainly lots of people who are not our listeners would maybe push back on that and say, Oh no, 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 no. The main problem in our church right now is feminization. Right. Uh, It's exactly the opposite, Rachel, of what you are seeing. Um, and uh, so I want to back up just a little bit and emphasize what you said, that the, the worship in the church is not, not meant to be gendered. It's not masculinized or feminized. It's neither. Right. It's meant to be uh, human, um, the body of Christ worshiping him, um, rehearsing for what we'll do in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's not really intended to be gendered. Absolutely. And, you know, those, those complaints about church being feminized, about um, society being feminized, those, those go back, um, honestly, to the Victorian era when uh, society determined that it was for the, the best of society that women would be the keepers of morality. And so religion and morality were then properly the, the realm of women. And uh, you had pushback to that and and a desire for a muscular Christianity, even at that point. And you still see those 
um, those two extremes kind of fighting it out today about, you know, the worship is feminized, so we need to make it masculinized. But absolutely, the, the truth is we need to make our worship biblical and uh, not gendered. So, you know, we you just took it back into history and society and those sort of views. Um, we're talking about men's and women's differences still. How do those differences play out in society then outside of the church? Um, I, I still think that while we do have differences as men and women, there are generalities about those differences uh, and cultural uh, assumptions about men and women. Um, our society today is probably a lot more open to men and women in working together, sharing um, uh, society as, as equals. Uh, although, you know, with the transgender movement and the other push uh, for um, how to understand what it means to be a man or woman, there is still a lot of confusion about um what you do and how you behave and whether that makes you, uh, do you lose your man card for doing these things? Do you, are you um, uh, less of a a woman if you've done uh, or don't do certain things? You you still have those, those discussions in our society. Um, I think that it's important as Christians, how we treat each other in society because, uh, while some people will see how we treat each other in church and, and some people will notice our marriages and, and the, the sacrificial service focus that we, we should have in our marriages, the place that people are going to see us the most is how we, we act and treat each other um, in society and in public. And the world will notice if we treat each other well. And so I think it's important that, uh, that, we see that men and women, that we share a creation mandate. As you said at the beginning, we are called to work equally. We've been given the, the call to work. Um, we've been given different gifts. All of these gifts are necessary for society to run well. And we are called uh, to service. And as Christians, our calling then is to to live in a way that glorifies God, you knows we serve each other, and in a way that uh, promotes the gospel and, and spreads the gospel. And so I think it's very important that we treat each other in ways that are God-honoring so that um, society sees and can hear our message about the gospel instead of being um, distracted by uh, you know, our, our infighting over whether it's right for a woman to be a police officer or whether um, a a man loses his man card for being a stay-at-home dad. I think that these discussions detract from us sharing the gospel with the world. Amen to that. I I think of of something I read from an apologist in a blog. It doesn't even matter what the blog was about, but um, he was talking about how some of our infighting plays out for the world to see, especially now with social media. And he said, you know, how do we look to the world when we treat one another like this? And often I'll see, you know, sometimes Twitter has crazy fights over things like what you just mentioned. And I'll see somebody will sneak into one of these crazy fights and say something like, that's why I left the church. And it really, really breaks my heart. Um, We could have talked about so much more. And we may dig into some of these things on future episodes. 
uh, like I said, I had a hard time even narrowing questions because there's so much I think that we need to discuss that is in your book, Rachel. And I do want to recommend that people go and buy it. I will, I'm going to link actually a blog post that Rachel did on launch day, which actually um, lists out where you can buy the book. Um, Amazon, PNR Books, um, the Westminster Seminary Bookstore. And so you have some options there on where to purchase the book. And which brings me to a little bit of an announcement um, that I have, and this is in regards to Theology Gals. So, you know, when I started Theology Gals, it's now been two and a half years. Um, Ashley Glassick was my co-host. And uh, we brought, when Ashley got pregnant and had a baby, uh, we brought Angela on for Really, it just started out as Angela's going to fill in for Ashley for a couple months while she goes and has her baby. And, and Ashley had her baby and said, well, I don't know if I can, you know, she said, I, I, I just don't think I can continue with the, pod, with the podcast. And I'm just going to apologize for my dog barking in the background because real life happens sometimes on the, on the podcast. And when, when Ashley said um, she just couldn't come back, and of course, we remain close friends, um, Angela agreed to stay on. And again, sometimes life happens in busyness, and Angela actually is on another podcast now, which doesn't have anything to do with that, with my announcement here. But um, Angela is going to be stepping away, and my new co-host is going to be Rachel. So that is the big, big Theology Girls announcement. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not, we're not in some, you know, I know people always love to speculate. Angela and I have no fight or there's nothing like that going on. It's just life happens and sometimes things are busy. Um, I think people will still be able to catch you, Angela, on your other podcast, New Geneva. Yeah, and we're on a little bit of a break right now from that as well. Again, life happens and people get busy. So, um, yeah, just like you said, people will look for a maybe try to think that there's a, a deeper meaning, but it's really just that. I mean, podcasting is um, a time-consuming hobby. So, um, and I have really loved my time on Theology Gals, and um, uh, just as Ashley is back every now and then uh, for something special, I may be back sometime for yeah. something special. But um, I am so excited to hear coming episodes with Colleen and Rachel. I am excited to be um, a regular listener again. That's actually how I came on Theology Gals was just a regular listener. And um, I'm very, very excited for the future. I love Theology Gals. I'm always here uh, lurking in the shadows and I'll still be on Twitter. Yeah. And I am I'm very grateful to both of you, and I'm very thankful to be a part. I'm very excited to be a part of the Theology Gals team now, and looking forward to being on more of these podcasts. Woohoo! I'm kind of, I am still kind of in the honored that Rachel would even, you know, consider. Um, I was a reader to Rachel's blog long before I knew her, so. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm really really excited. It was like one of the three blogs I read regularly. I mean, it still is. <laughs> I know, Colleen. When you told me that you had uh, someone who could uh, come in and become a new co-host, I ha I really had no ideas in my mind. And then you said it was Rachel, and I I said immediately, "Oh, you should do that. You <laughs> you should have you should have her. 
you should fire that other girl. You should get Rachel. She's <laughs> great. Two times. So, I'm so excited, actually. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the thing that I am grateful for is that um, the special friendships that I've developed with both Ashley and Angela, and both of them are just mean the world to me. And I'm, I'm excited that we get to continue to do this. I, I never thought Theology Gals would become what it has and the growth that we've had. We've really had a lot of growth with you joining Angela and in this last year. And so I'm excited to see what the, what the future holds uh, with Theology Gals. So, but I do encourage everyone, go buy Rachel's book because we barely scratched the surface on on what's what's in the book and there's actually some topics i hope rachel and i will take up uh specifically from the book and be able to dig in a little deeper i'm looking forward to it well thank you for joining us and we will be back next week